0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: This is Lloyd Auerbach, and uh, we appreciate you for taking the time to do the show again.
2: Thanks,
1: Al. So, So, um, now let's talk a little bit about you. Now, it looks like you've got quite the history. Now, you've got a master's degree in uh, parapsychology. Uh, You're the director of the Office of Paranormal Investigations and president of Forever Family Foundation. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, like the Forever Family Foundation.
2: Well, the foundation was started a little over 10 years ago by a couple who had lost their daughter in an accident. And they had been grieving quite a bit, and it turned out that um, a medium that was being seen by one of their friends <clears throat> got a message from their daughter and uh, Bob and the couples, Bob and Friends Ginsburg. And they, uh, Bob was very skeptical, but over a short period of time, with the amount of evidence that came through the medium directly from their daughter Bailey, they really were convinced. And it actually made them feel good. It, it, it helped them through their grief significantly. And they decided to, uh, once they found other people who had had significant help in their grieving from mediums decided to start a foundation to, to support the work of mediums in the family grieving process, and also to support the research work in of, in variety of areas of looking at experiences of life after death, survival of bodily death. So everything from controlled research in the laboratory of mediums to apparition research, reincarnation, and so on.
1: Wow, that sounds like quite a... Um, whereabouts is that located?
2: The foundation is headquartered on Long Island in New York, but there are members, mostly in the United States, but all over the world. People can join for free. Uh, You might say that the foundation is headquartered on the web these days since we're doing webinars uh, and they have a weekly radio show, and it's foreverfamilyfoundation.org. But again, people can join for free, and there's a a a twice-a-year magazine and activities here and there, although... They're, they've been mainly centered in the Northeast. We're trying to get them out in other parts of the country as well.
1: Is, is there a goal? Like, What, what exactly um, are you trying to accomplish from this um, now that it's up and running?
2: Well, go, there's two goals. Well, the, the primary goal is actually education and helping the public understand what mediumship is uh, and what, what the evidence is for life after death in general. Um, the secondary goal is to support mediums by and the idea of mediumship and and the grieving process by actually I guess you could say uh, vetting good mediums and they have a certification program which they'll do every so often even at a distance to see how evidential the mediums are and then also just do some background checks and such to make sure that the mediums are have some other background and the mediums who go through the certification process to stay certified have to volunteer part of their time uh, not a lot, but did you have to do volunteer every year some hours to the foundation since the foundation is a five oh one C three nonprofit volunteer organization?
1: Okay. And as president, uh, how do you see your role there?
2: Well, I've been less I've been president for a couple of years now and I've presided over a couple of our conferences. We actually were running annual conferences Uh, until it became evident that there's too many other similar conferences out there that uh, are drawing people away. Um, But I presided over, them, and those were conferences that brought together scientists who were doing research, both in the field and in the laboratory, as well as mediums who are part of the foundation uh, for the general public. And now I'm kind of overseeing some projects we've got. We do have a project we're, we're working on to reach out to other organizations in the parapsychology and consciousness world and see if we can help spur on a lot more su- uh, kind of cross-pollination uh, and support for each other. Uh, so the whole idea here is this is about family, and we're trying to make this more about, you know, about not just individual families but about the family of man, so to speak, But yeah, when yeah. it comes to this con- these concepts.
1: Yeah, and that's quite interesting, actually. The um – now, you're a parapsychologist, and, and the few that I know uh, quite well, uh, for the most part, tend to stay away from um, the mediums and the uh, ghost hunting and things like that. And and is there a reason in general for that? Is it just like you, you feel like it's going to be bad for your reputation? or?
2: Well, you know, a lot of my colleagues are laboratory-based, and they have to deal within the strictures of laboratory research and, and actually... Some of them um, are in either uh, connected academia or in academic situations where they have to be extremely careful because there's so much prejudice against any of these topics in and from academia. Um, others, you know, some of them don't necessarily believe in themselves in life after death, and they, they're, they look at experiences with mediums, for example, as uh, examples of extraordinary psychic ability, but not necessarily communicating with the dead, uh, you know, I, I have to say that part of this also is why they stay away from it is who funding sources are. And there are so few funders that they have to be, stick with what they can best sell to the funding organizations, the, found, uh, the foundations that do the funding. And in fact, those same foundations have funded mediumship research. It's just that the parapsychologists themselves were not necessarily a person or just not their personal interest
3: right right you
2: know as far as far I want to say something about the ghost hunting thing you know field field investigation is something that is um, you never get funded for that <laughs> so yeah. that's that, another reason why a lot of parapsychologists don't do, what do that
3: yeah
1: well you know so I think the role of what a parapsychologist does and actually what they are is confusing for a lot of the mainstream people for listeners um, I, I I don't think they quite get it. Um, h- how would you how would you uh, phrase or how would you put it that a uh, what is a parapsychologist?
2: Parapsychologist is someone who studies psychic phenomena and psychic experiences, and that runs the gamut from extrasensory perception, which includes things like telepathy and precognition and remote viewing, and clairvoyance to psychokinesis which is the concept of mind over matter and we have different types of research we do there. Mostly the lab research is uh, done with computers and random event generators because it can be very difficult to control for fraud when you're talking about things that are happening in somebody's hands and we have seen a lot of fraud over the decades. And then of course parapsychology also covers looking into survival of bodily death. Um, Many parapsychologists are actually very interested in things like near-death experiences Um, and the University of Virginia has a whole division, a department that, uh, Department of Perceptual Studies at the Medical School that looks at things like uh, evidence of reincarnation from children who remember past lives and near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences. So, you know, we cover the gamut, but again, some people are more dedicated to the laboratory and other people really reach out and look at experiences in the real world. But even the laboratory researchers are aware of and look at the experiences in the real world because that informs what they're doing in the lab. And people who are doing the other, those of us who do field research, have to keep up on what's going on in the laboratory because that's where things get tested. So, you know, like psychology, there's you know, laboratory and out of the laboratory. You know, it's experimental and non-experimental. And uh, while we may not be counselors, we are educators talking about and providing information about this.
1: Well, where do you draw the line on on um, evidence? Like when you're gathering evidence as a parapsychologist, that means you're trying to do it scientifically. Um, because a lot of what's um, shown to the public, I think this is where the um, problem becomes, a lot of that is uh, uh, the loudest beep or the biggest uh, noise or the, the biggest thing on their whatever item of electronics they're using but nobody really explains that. Nobody really goes into that. Um, well,
2: yeah, you know, most of those people who, are, who you see on the ghost hunting shows have no concept of science, and they have no concept of parapsychology. Uh, the shows have been very carefully avoiding uh, the field that's been studying this subject for well over 100 years, uh, because they don't want uh, researchers, whether they're field group researchers like myself or laboratory researchers to take away from the so-called talent, as they call them, the teams, that are focused on in the show and that's that's drama i mean they're not meant to be science shows and unfortunately what's happened because of these shows that even if the people on the tv shows which i suspect only some of them do knew what the equipment does and cannot do what it can and cannot do the producers have crafted the or edited the episodes so that you're not getting the whole story You know, you're not getting, if they get a big beat and they get excited, and then the next moment they figure out that there's some other cause, some non paranormal cause for that, pretty evident, you're not seeing the non paranormal cause on that show because they've edited it out. Uh, So the sad thing is, I think, and it speaks to, unfortunately, (laughs) a segment of the American public believing reality TV is what it, you know, is only what you see on TV without asking questions about what's missing. Or what's really going on um, is a deficit in uh, in our education system.
1: Right, right, right. We we become crystallized in thought. We're no longer right. tr- trying to figure out things or, or um, question them. Um, right,
2: and, and the media. You know, frankly, the media has been. You know, the, even the news media has been responsible for undercutting this. You know, you know, when it's an in entertainment industry, I don't, I don't really. Um, blame them because they're trying to put together entertaining shows. Uh, although with the reality shows that the people on the shows are not allowed to make public statements about what, what's real and what's not because of their contracts, that's a failing of that, of that industry. But back, going back to Ghostbusters, when that movie came out, you know, suddenly reporters and media were asking the, the simple question, we know it's not like this, what's it really like? Although producers were still asking if we had any equipment that had pretty lights and made a lot of noise because they're television. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> well, there you
1: have it. Uh, uh, so, so it hasn't really gone a long way. Um, is there is there anything I think that you find a watchable? I, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but just anything you find redeemable in watching the ghost hunting shows right now on TV.
2: Well. Personally, I don't watch them. Um, I find them boring. <laughs> I'd rather watch a scripted show that actually has some, some uh, thought cut behind it. Um, you know, I, I've, worked in, I've worked in reality TV here and there. You know, I've done my own segments, and I actually have been involved in several show pitches for reality shows and, and development um, where we, we can find ways to make the shows interesting to a greater segment of the population, not just the goat hunting fans but most of the TV people are not interested. They're interested in only doing what they, see, they think works or what they've seen work. The shows that I've seen that have been interesting, there was a show called from Canada called Ghostly Encounters uh, where people actually told their own stories, told their own ghost stories. They found people who could tell a good story who had an experience, positive, negative, neutral, and that was an interesting show because it's kind of what we do. We talk to people and find out what their experiences are, and that was well done. Uh, and it was pretty clear that the people, they just simply found good people, or people who could tell a good story, as opposed to prompting the people what to say. Uh, so it's shows like that that are, I find interesting.
1: Yeah, there's more of a sense of reality. It's like it's like talking to a witness, so it's something yeah, that's, yeah. you know, you can pick something out of that.
2: and uh, Yeah, even the celebrity paranormal shows, you know, when they're telling their stories, they found, you know, actors and actresses who had experiences. Those are more interesting than the ghost hunting shows, and it just... You know, when I see these shows, and I, we do not investigate in the dark, and the only reason people are investigating the dark is because of television. You know, it has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with our history and parapsychology. It has nothing to do with people's experiences. They've created this uh, mythology around how and why ghosts appear, and, and, and oddly, a lot of it comes from, you know, beliefs of psychics or things psychics have said over the last hundred years, you know, and even the phony mediums would say, well, goats can only appear in the dark. So what they're these shows that are, are using that mythology, that those that folklore, at the same time are saying we're not gonna work with psychics because psychics are useless. So they're using the information from psychics they don't even believe in yeah. Yeah. to create a mythology or folklore that people are believing in. Yeah.
1: Well I know I look thinner in the dark, so <laughs> I would prefer yeah. I prefer that. <laughs> Do you
2: Cameras?
1: Oh, no, maybe not. Second thought. Well, well, where where would that come from but why why would they say it has to be in the dark? It just creates an atmosphere and it's easier to kind of scare people or get them exactly. into Exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. Back, back back when I started doing television in the 80s, um, the number of times we went out on on uh, either to haunted lo- locations, the producers would always we or directed with us would say, "Can we lower the lights? Can we make sure we do this at night even though the people are experiencing things during the daytime can you turn the lights out Now, fortunately, um you know the camera guys are, are saying well we can't turn the lights out because then you won't see anything <laughs> yeah. and then then of course all of a sudden we had sony Nightshot cameras and the the, uh, the infrared camera showing in the dark and and even more than just being able to see in the dark is people's eyes shined and things look spooky so they had their own uh, very inexpensive atmospheric um technology, use of technology, that allowed them to make things even spookier. And it just, the show, a couple of the shows started doing that in the early 2000s, and all of a sudden, you know, it looks good on camera, it looks good on TV, and TV is a visual image uh, medium, so you're always trying to come up with something visual. And rather than having people wander around or or walk around a place uh, with the lights on, uh, you know, you can at least create some suspense because they're in the dark, and the odds are that something's going to happen in the dark. Um, you know, the fact is that people are, and this is, this is scientifically documented, there have been studies showing people are terrible observers in the dark.
1: Right. <laughs> so, well, yeah. you, know. you know. I mean, her eyes aren't as good. I, I, I think that any time you have that, and when you're put in a situation with a feeling like the darkened room, the whole atmosphere mm-hmm. is what sells it. Like it puts preconceived notions into your mind. Of course. And, of course. and they'll all be different because we're all slightly different. But it still puts something in our minds. So I think it's really hard. And that, that leads me to how, how do you really scientifically research something like this where you can't really prove it? I mean, you can bring, you can bring pieces of evidence into it.
2: Um, you know proof proof in science you know proof is the word proof is overrated in science uh, because there's very little that's actually been proven you know we experience gravity but what gravity is has not been proven right you know there are many things that um, have significant evidence that have theory you you do want theory and you want to be able to explain these things and that leads to what we would consider proof or acceptance Um, but here let's let's Start with the root. What we're starting with here is a human experience. A person experiences a ghost. A person witnesses something happening. You don't have physical evidence, except maybe the aftermath. So, if it's a poltergeist case where things are moving around, you might have some broken stuff, and you might even be able to, if you're lucky, catch it on camera moving. But even then, you still have to watch the video, and you have to question whether the video was legitimate or was, whether it was faked. We are parapsychology is social science. We are dealing with human experiences living or dead, we're still doing with human experiences. And like all social science, the evidence is based on people's subjective experience and an attempt at objectively understanding what those experiences relate to. We can apply the scientific method, but not so well in the field because we're not in total control like we would be in a laboratory. We can still apply some of it. So you might say that, that the investigation part of the field is applied science. We're applying what we learn in the laboratory, what we've learned in history, to the investigations um, in the field.
1: Right. Well, you, you, but you being um, at your master's level in it, you must have some sort of belief in mm-hmm. in 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 what's going on and, and the attempt to to uh, let's say um, get evidence in this area. Um, how, how, how is it now did you have personal experiences with us what we say supernatural or paranormal in your earlier life that had led you down this this kind of path?
2: No, it's just because I was a bit of a science fiction and comic book nerd okay <laughs> More than anything else yeah uh, i you know it just was I was a little science geek as a kid uh, interested in astronomy and geology among other things and um, I also love mythology and, and science fiction and comic books. I mean and somewhere in the 60s it was probably a combination of hearing about ESP in a couple of TV shows. They certainly I saw ghost shows like the old Topper TV series and One Step Beyond which dramatized actual psychic experiences which caught my attention uh, as a little kid. and then the comic books themselves occasionally talked about ESP and about psychic powers and then comes along Star Trek, which involved that quite a bit, and Dark Shadows, right. which sent me, sent me to the library, and I surprisingly and easily found books on parapsychology by people like J.B. Ryan, who was the kind of father of modern parapsychology, and being a science geek, I read the, lab, the the books that talk about laboratory research. I was really interested in it, and I even was able to get a couple of my teachers to sponsor, help sponsor a parapsychology club in high school. Um, But it was never about an experience I had had uh, until much later. Uh, You know, I certainly had experiences since I got into the field. And I met psychics, actually. I met parapsychologists in high school thanks to one of my neighbors who knew a couple of them in the New York area. And uh, I actually connected with people in college and, and after. So I was kind of led along a path to get involved in the field. But, you know, personally... I was undecided even with all the the literature that I read I was certainly leaning towards the concept that survival of of death death was happening from the literature and from what people had found but one of my early cases actually left me with no other alternative that made sense so I kind of you know, that's when that started developing
1: right and and there is now there, there there is a difference with I think there's the whole picture of uh Consciousness, like we, we survive, our mind survives after our body dies, right. as well as what's left well, behind.
2: You know, right now we have no consensus in science. Um, there are, There's consensus in small parts, in segments of science, but there's no real consensus to what consciousness is. Not even a good definition. Right. And... The question for, us, for people looking at survival of bodily death is what is it that survives? That's the question. Um, you know, there's a secondary question is how is it that that thing that survives can communicate or connect, interact? And for us, that if, if consciousness survives, the way ghosts or apparitions actually interact is through psychic ability. I mean, they can't even see the, they don't even have eyes. So how in the world can they see the world except maybe with their direct consciousness, which is de- the very definition of ESP? But uh, we you know we're kind of stuck here because we don't know about about consciousness in the body to say that there is something or is not something you know there, is there something that could survive? and I think that until it, we're just not there in science in general to be able to know for sure which that is,
1: yeah, yeah, and you know that that that's got to lead to another issue um. Because it seems like no matter where I go in this field, um, whether any type of paranormal or crypto or UFO, um, the term uh, and the thoughts of religion always come in. And now that's got like, and you were mentioning reincarnation, for instance. Mm-hmm. Now, so so that has got to affect you, like if you if you were brought up as A certain type of religion, and um, how you see God, per se, and death, is already kind of pre, you know, pre pre put in. It's kind of, you know, pre pre coded.
2: Well, your your program just like any education programs us in certain directions and certain beliefs. Um, Reincarnation is believed by more than a billion people on the planet. It's not it's not a small belief. There are many variations of flavors of reincarnation belief. We in our field stick with um, young, young, young children who spontaneously recall past lives. And while it seems that that's what's going on, you know, there's some other folks who are trying to work on some other potential, other possibilities, including, you know, genetic memory or even accessing information, accessing memory. Um, We don't even know where memory is stored in the brain. So there's that issue too but there's other issues uh, or, that might lead to some different interpretations for reincarnation, one of which actually is possession. You know, people have even suggested that it's really a spirit that just kind of temporarily possession the kid and working through them. So you have different interpretations where reincarnation, the idea at least that some part of that person's, form, the former person's personality, has survived, whether it is memory alone or consciousness intact, is hard to say, But um, you're right, I mean, religion does inform that, but, you know, the fact is that most major religions have talked about reincarnation as a possibility, even if it's only been a minor possibility, and that includes Christianity in its early days. Uh, It's just that sometimes as religions evolve over time, which they do, and people translate and retranslate and decide what's canon and what's not you include things that may be or you, I should say exclude things that are not politically expeditious right
3: right
1: and 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 also by being pre-coded by this uh, you know if you if you have a certain thought of what reincarnation is and what's going to happen mm-hmm. and also how you see your God so you know you're passing through the light and your God is uh, got a beard and a cape and and white right and as compared to, you know, like, it, 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 doesn't that fall in, like you were talking about NDEs, like near-death experiences, yep. and I know I've had a few people on um, on that subject. And it, it seems to me, from what they've told me, and it, that you almost, it, the person almost sees what's kind of, they should see as, as the right. religion.
2: There, There is a definitely a cultural or religious context, so people will... Um, you can see relatives um, if they're going to see anybody or, at all they may see a being of light just simply some, some light which they may interpret as an angel if they want to call it that but uh, in some cross-cultural studies people have um, you know, Hindus have seen Hindu gods, Christians have seen Christ or one of the apostles um, other people have seen you know specific interpretative, interpretations of what they consider God, some people just heard the voice of the presence, you know, of God. Um, it just and some and people, you know, there have been experiences by from atheists, by the way. You know, they, they don't believe in God. They've typically run into their relatives or some unnamed sense of coming back, of being sent back. So there is an interpretation here, but that that the core experience seems to be the same, uh, generally the same for the best of the NDEs, of course. Uh, and, and there's no question religion does inform us to some extent. You know, I grew up in a very reformed Judaic family, and I don't believe in demons, you know, <laughs> because there are no demons. You know, there's, we were taught. First of all, I was even taught, and even my grandfather was Orthodox, he was even taught that you don't take the Bible literally. This is something to discuss. So the stories are allegorical or parables from which you learn if they're not strict, necessarily all strict history. Uh, take literally, and we haven't seen really the evidence of demonic presences uh, in our field at all and harmful things some you know sometimes people can be bullies I guess after death just like there are bullies in life but we don't really get the the demon thing right and even the angel thing is interpretation
1: right so I, I kind of get that because I that's sort of a little bit how I believe it i don't I don't believe in a demon angel per se I think that Perhaps it's someone that's passed over or left, some residual that happens to go along with the personality of when they were mm-hmm. alive. You know, they might just right. be, you know, an ass.
2: And, right. Uh, exactly. <laughs> unfortunately,
1: there's an awful lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. T- more. You know, we seem to get more and more all the time, and yeah. uh, you know, and, and uh, they get they get more press time too now. <laughs> well, yeah, and this
2: is a good, you know, the whole thing of the the TV shows. Uh, I just and have informed these ghost hunting groups, and it's just crazy to me that. You know, I'll I'll get people telling me, well, we just went into a a house and there was a demonic presence. I said, well, how do you know there was a demonic presence? I said, well, because we got an EVP of a voice saying, get out. I said, really? (laughs)
3: Yeah.
2: Um, And did you, I don't know, were you friendly when you walked in or did you challenge the ghost or something like that? Because personally, um, if I was a ghost and you came in yelling at me, which a lot of ghost hunting groups like to do, I would be saying things stronger than get out. I'm even hit
3: somebody
2: <laughs> upside the head. Yeah. <laughs> but to me, but to me, you know, they're acting rude and they're acting like demons, not the ghosts.
1: Yeah, that's uh, so, what you know. That's sort of I. I think that it, it, they take things out of context, and, totally. and and it seems to go in fads. You know how there's poltergeists, and then now the mm-hmm. de- demonists, the word of the year for sure this year.
2: Yeah. And yeah. I actually saw a video last year of some group that went into a, an abandoned building, um, which was open open air, and. In an area that apparently had wild dogs, um, and they got an EVP supposedly of a of a growling something. Now there are wild dogs running around, which they even admitted in the thing, and they called it a demon. And to me, yeah, that that they were looking for something to to label that way. Uh, most likely, it was an actual dog that yeah. none of them heard at the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just. Um...
2: Yeah,
1: how how do you yeah? But that's a tough one. How do you draw the line? But, and um, uh, you you because I know I noticed in in your in your books, uh, mm-hmm. one of them was the uh, ghost detectives. You know, the guide to mm-hmm. haunted San Francisco. So you're kind of. Uh, so if you're out actually investigating, how do you draw the line when you think someone is um, talking about demons and possessions and and. Uh, and you well, really you know, I mean,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, frankly, um, we always have conversations with people up front about their cases, and I, if somebody thinks it's it's demon, demonic, or evil, uh, you know, I do. First of all, on the phone, I do. Besides the pre-interview, I do give them some background and let them know that we typically find that what what happens is that these things are not as evil as you think they are. You know, they may be harmful, and we can see what we can do about that, but. Jumping to that conclusion is, is difficult. Um, and I you know, give the example of the ghost hunters who say that it's demonic because somebody said, get out. And most people kind of understand them. The whole idea is to reduce the fear. We, you definitely don't want to tell people that you think it's evil or demonic, uh, certainly not before an actual investigation on site, before you figure things out. Because all too often people are, for whatever reason, sometimes because of the TV shows or horror film imagining sounds and things that they've heard that are actually explainable as something that could indicate a demon being present uh, you rarely ever have people actually being attacked at least in their in their reports uh, so we have to kind of educate them and if I run into somebody who just absolutely positively will not um, even consider that it's anything but a demon I'm you know I'm, my question is why do they want a scientist to come in you know, we don't deal with demons. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, I can come in and the question is, are you going to listen to me? And I have to consider that because if we can't do any good when we're going in an investigation, they need to be referred out to somebody from a religious perspective.
1: Right, right. You know, uh, they just had that um, um, on television. I still haven't watched it where they uh, were going to do a live uh exorcism on t- oh that
2: house yeah, that, yeah. you know first <laughs> of all there were four houses that bladdy four four cases that bladdy based the exorcist on that's number one number two i haven't heard of anything saying that any of those houses are still haunted um, and then the third thing is that an exorcism is of a person not a place right you can call that a house clearing or cleansing but it's certainly not an exorcism, and you don't need a religious figure to do it. You can do it—you know, psychics can do it, and there are other ways you can do it, for that matter. And but I would want to know. I—I I, I haven't seen. I didn't record. Unfortunately, forgot to record the show. But I'm curious. If the, how did they establish the place was still haunted? Well, I don't I mean, think. Where, are, are there living witnesses, or just simply that that was the house the Exorcist was based on?
1: Well, I—I I just don't think it really mattered. Yeah.
2: <laughs> not for TV. No. no. No, I heard it I did hear it all totally flat. It felt oh, flat.
1: You know, it was it was one of because usually I, I'm I'm all on it. I've got so many things going on and I mm-hmm. yeah, like you, I would have it pre recorded and then I'd skim through it to see if there look like there's anything interesting. I, I found very little follow up on it. I didn't bother It's was one of those I just didn't bother. I just kind of wow, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh I it just it's, it's gone too far. And, uh,
2: I, and you, well, just, and I, I think that going too far is that show Naked and Paranormal that's going to come in, come well,
1: up soon. <laughs> well, yeah, you know,
2: <laughs> that's going too far. <laughs> that's
1: going too far. You know, it, well, you know, <laughs> just turn the volume off. I can have right. it running while I'm doing interviews in the studio, and it depends what they look like. Now,
2: yeah, but they're going to blur out the best parts. If oh, you them, see, then, you know,
1: if you're going to blur it, then don't bother. Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, come on. This is, we're adults here. Come on. But isn't this a problem? This is one thing I still have coming across. Now, how come in your mind you see so many popular uh, ghost hunting shows? And everybody wants to be a ghost hunter. And, and you can go on Facebook and you can go on uh, any of the oh, social media, yeah. And there's thousands and thousands. And there's new groups every day. And right, yeah.
2: You know, one of my students actually has done a survey and found email addresses or websites for over 3,000 groups in the United States alone.
1: So, what is that?
2: Um, it is the new Star Trek fandom. <laughs> That's what <Okay>. it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's, it's kind of a form of, of fan fandom, but in, it, in this case, unlike with Star Trek or Doctor Who, you really can't have your own parties and you really, really can't be on the Enterprise. Yeah. You can buy some inexpensive equipment, and you can go out and, and, and emulate them. Um, you know, I think that if people could actually um, get away with going out and fighting crime, they were watching the TV show Cops would probably have generated the same thing <laughs> to some extent. If they, you know, they weren't personally going to be uh, in physical danger from criminals. So it's just the nature of television to, and movies to have fans. And these, this is a group of fans uh, who emulate what they see on TV without questioning. I mean, there's a small percentage of them that either immediately or after working with the groups realize, yeah, this can't be right. And they do seek out educational opportunities, of which there are many now, um, to understand how one should really do this and what the phenomena really might be. They recognize that a couple of guys who work for Rotorooter, you know, didn't have, who, who admit to never having read anything or, or have, having done any research or, invest, or any education, how can they possibly um, do anything more than stumble around the dark? You know, because they're not checked. They're certainly not. They
0: may encounter We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step by step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C, it's truly criminal.
2: Stuff. But the you know, conclusions are based on stumbling around the dark. They're not based on anything that has gone before or any actual research. So people just like to do it. It's, it's a fun thing. I think that most of the ghost hunters out there are, um, you know, they are thrill seekers. A lot of them. Uh, the ones I have a problem with are the ones who suddenly become professionals That's number one. Yeah. Usually because they buy a lot of equipment. Yeah. Or claim to be scientific because they have a, little, a lot of equipment without cl- and clearly on their website it's very clear they don't understand science. They think that science and technology are equivalent and they're not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and they do more harm than good when they're going out there um, to private homes. You know, I you know the public locations are it doesn't matter as much, but. For private homes makes a big difference. Yeah, uh, and and even the ghost conferences tend to be fan fests. You know, if they don't have one of the celebrities there, celebrity ghost hunters there, um, you're not going to have a successful con- uh, conference. So, the idea of bringing somebody like me or Barry Taff or my colleagues in uh, as the headliners that would never work for them because their their base is the fans. Yeah. Of the shows.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I actually got invited to one last year, and uh, uh, the ghost hunters were there, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, who was that? Ben Hanson, you know, from Fact or Faked, and all that. Right. So right. so I was on like uh, you know um, day two at the very bottom of the poster. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: I, I got. Some, I was. I did a couple conferences when the guys from Paranormal State actually had conferences in Pennsylvania, and one of them we had a huge panel with. with The guy from Ghost Hunters and a couple other para-celebrities, including Chip Coffee and some of the producers and all. And I um, effectively, you know, decided to butt in a few times when a couple of those para-celebrities made statements that were absolutely patently untrue and stupid. And fortunately had um, backup from... Another author, Michelle Belanger, who's also very knowledgeable.
1: Yeah, she is. Very, very smart. Yeah, so
2: she she backed me up. But, you know, to to hear someone who is a major TV celebrity on these shows say, there's no literature in this field before the 1990s. And here I am sitting there, and they'd already mentioned my first book, which came out in 1986, so let alone that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I, I spoke up and said, you know, this field goes back to the 1800s and there's free stuff on the Internet, and the books are up on the Internet before 1923, and how can you possibly say there's nothing there? It's only because you never looked.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, so. I think it's, it's just another area that's out there that uh, people have no research in it. Um, it's like even yeah. the media. There's so many people that just do what they're doing, but right. they haven't really sat down and read a book. Or did something to really try to gather some information yeah uh,
2: I I had my I had a really surprising moment and and I call it my William Shatner get a life moment (laughs) I was was at a conference in Pennsylvania um, for somebody else and there were 200 people in the audience and I was doing a lecture on parapsychology for ghost hunters and I put up a picture of some some resource books most of which I, I knew that people would not know but I put up a picture at the time of Deborah Blum's book The Ghost Hunters which had been out relatively recently, and had even made the New York Times bestseller list about the early days of the ghost hunters in, in the field of parapsychology and psychical research. And I asked if anybody had read the book, and two hands go up, and they were both my students. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I said, how many of you knew about the book? And those, two same, those same two hands, and one or two others go up. And I, I frankly, I kind of lost it for a moment. I was, I was nonplussed. I was like, how can you people call yourselves ghost hunters and not know about a book that's even in the mainstream. Yeah. Called the Ghost Hunters. How do you yeah. not know? Well. And it got, it got me in trouble.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's gone to a, and most of those now, um, all the conferences are all very much the same. It's the same people yeah. on the circuits going around and around. And you get, you can get on it. And you can get on the circuit and kind of do that. Um, I, I, I like to get off just as fast as I get on. Um, it's just uh it seems to waste you know, a lot of time, it's a waste of time it, for me
2: it, it is, I would love to do them, but they you know to me for me to do them, they have to pay me, yeah, <laughs> and you know at least the t v people a lot of times they're not necessarily being paid by the conference if they still are on television, it's most likely the network is paying for them to be there yeah so it that's another reason for the conference people to actually have them because it's promotional for the show, and they don't have to take anything away from what they're making on the conference, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, for for me it was just networking and meeting some people that I found mm-hmm. interesting. But then again, it seems to be most of the time you go, you don't really meet, you know, the the interesting people. It's more like Michelle Blanchier or even yourself or Barry Taft, It's very seldom you meet any of that. Yeah, it's it's yeah. more it's more of the you know.
2: It's because they don't. They again, they don't. Most of the time, they don't want us there, uh, or we're too expensive. Of course, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, and. Uh, and yeah, yeah, it's just um, so I'm sort of you know, but you know the UFO thing hasn't mm-hmm. taken off like this, like like well,
2: I, oh, it, it, yeah, sure it has.
1: I well, well you no, know, it, it has, has but, well,
2: yeah, okay, maybe not the same, not the same Well, way, not
1: in right. you know, not the same uh, way as in like okay, for instance, I can turn around and start up a little little thing here. I'm a ghost hunter, on and I like to form a team, and we can do this, and I can get right. T-shirts, and and we can all be happy, but. What I mean is, um, and I can also tell people, oh yeah, no, I, I have a radio show that covers in in uh, ghosts and paranormal, and people for the most part, oh wow, that's cool, oh wow, and they talk about the ghosts and stuff, but people are still scared to come out about being UFOs and like, oh yeah, I was I was abducted or I saw something or I saw UFOs. They still don't,
2: they're not running yeah. out the same way. I mean, well, I, I would think you're probably right. Well, first of all, you can't really team to go and do investigations of that, because first of all, you'd have to find out where, when people saw the UFO, and the only thing you can do is interview the witness in general. I mean, if it's a situation where it's a, sec, a close encounter of the second kind, where there's physical evidence, you at least have that, but in general with UFOs, you're dealing with people. It's like somebody saw a ghost, and there's the ghost is not there in the house anymore, pretty clearly. Do you go out and do an investigation? And that's um, more interviewing. Uh, I... In college, I knew uh, Jalen Hynek fairly well. He was the head of the Astronomy Department in Northwestern. I even volunteered for the Center for UFO Studies uh, for a year. And, and, you know, they really study, ufologists study UFO reports for the most part because you typically don't have uh, physical evidence left behind, just like you don't have it in ghost cases. But at least in the, in the paranormal cases, there's a good chance that the phenomena is still going on Whereas with UFOs, you'd have to establish that the UFO comes regularly or coming once in a while. And that just generally doesn't happen. So there is that element, uh, number one. Number two, UFOs are outside us. So some other agency is appearing and letting you see. Whereas with ghosts, they are either connected to a location or connected to people, but we're also dealing with people if we have ghosts there. So re- the idea of repetition um, is pretty likely and that makes it easier to talk about it because more people will have had these experiences and, in fact, more people have had ghostly experiences than even will admit. There's a huge segment of the population that in polls and surveys have acknowledged that they've had the experiences. But if, if you pull them, you know, I, I get people telling me stories all the time from major, you know, like doctors, lawyers, and other people, corporate executives when I meet them. When they, after they talk to me and find out that I'm a little bit more common sense and not crazy, <laughs> then they'll tell me their story. But, and I always like to ask them, have you ever told anybody this question, this story? And they haven't even told their spouses. Right. So it's not, you know, there is a lot of people, like with UFOs, who have not admitted. And then, there, of course, there are consequences for a certain profession that they admit to seeing a UFO, like a pilot, even though pilots have seen UFOs all over the place. Um, They have to be very careful because they could be removed or suspended for saying
1: that. You know, and I just find that strange. Um, I I, I just don't know what the difference would be if I would say, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I was at an exorcism last month, or if I saw an alien.
2: I think if, you're, if, that, if you're that exorcism, you, you know, they have to, people have to be careful commenting because if it's a religious belief, right, then, yeah. you, then you get into some issues uh, that could cause a lawsuit. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah if I if, if if I say it in, in on U.S. media, I'll have to be um, have my lawyer. I I, but I just it's just silly. Um, I don't yeah. get. I, I'm just you know.
2: Well, let's let's take the UFO. Is an unidentified flying object in other words if you see something in the sky you don't know what it is that's a UFO. yeah the question is can we explain it and for someone to say that they saw something that they didn't know what it was and here's what it looked like it's then the next step is to try to figure out what it could be that's not unexplainable but it's not you know an alien first of all you really can't say that these are alien spacecraft for sure because you know, you'd have to have them land and, and make sure that there were aliens inside.
1: Uh, I also find that there's a big government thing.
2: And, and,
1: and you know, because right now, like whenever times are tough or things are struggling and all the stuff that's going on, you find that um, when people are, you know, scared of the government, you know, they're going to, and and there's the thought of the, you know, the guns and all that going on, that the government's in conspiracy with the UFOs, with the aliens yeah. on the moon, and they yeah. know about it. See, worse, worse, I guess ghosts don't have that. Like, it's not right. it's, it's right. not like your president's in bed with a ghost. Or, well, <laughs> I don't know. The White House is it. How do yeah. you know? I, well, this is, yeah, Joshua said that about Warren, I yeah. think. Yeah. Well, you, know, you know, that's... I, I, I think you're right. Uh, and the, the conspiracy theorists,
2: um, you know, first of all, you have to define what a conspiracy is i mean conspiracy technically could be three people in the government so to say that the u.s government is in bed with ufos yes it's possible if there are aliens visiting us that there's someone who's working with them some agency or some some small group of individuals but that doesn't mean it's the government and i think you have to be really careful um martin caden who was a science and science fiction writer he uh passed away in 1997. He was somebody I had to know in the 90s very well. He, uh, bio- among other things...
1: Bio- 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 yeah, the
2: Bionic... That's right. Yeah. A million dollar man. He also wrote enormous amount of material on aviation because he was an aviation expert and a lot about the space program because he was not only a space program expert and historian, he was also a consultant to NASA. And he, at one point in his career, was in military intelligence, and he did look into the UFO thing because he was interested. And what he found is that... Um, the best he could find out is that there's a lot of evidence that the military had that's indicated that something was flying around our skies that they couldn't stop. Not who it was, not what it was, but just that there were things flying around that they couldn't stop. And the Pentagon, as he put it, in its infinite wisdom, would prefer to let people think that we know more than we do because people then at least think the government is in control versus there's something unknown we can't deal with. It.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's there, you know there's yeah there's so much political, bowl to all of this that it's just.
2: Uh yeah, it, it is. I mean, my latest book, um, ESP Wars, was about the uh, which I co-wrote with Ed May, who was the program director for our remote viewing program, the government's remote viewing program. Right. Um, you know that book uh, goes deeply into the politics as well of the programs and why why they happen, why they stop, shut down, and, and also with the Russians because we had interviews from the Russians. Uh, involved in this research for the first time, ever. And last week, Newsweek puts out a major story about uh, the remote viewing program, uh, and uh, and about a couple of remote interviewed Ed and a couple of remote viewers. And the very first line is "Pentagon scientists." You know, starts out with Pentagon scientists. Ed was never a Pentagon scientist. <laughs> <laughs> and throughout the, throughout the, the, the story, the story they had to show I mean, it's like they threw everybody under the bus. Uh, right. There's a never looked at both sides of the story. Really, um, the reporter very clearly did not want to say anything, say that there was anything to this, very clearly. But when you start out with a falsehood or an inaccuracy, both in the headline and in the article, in identifying who your principal is, how much can we believe the rest of the story?
3: Right, yeah.
1: Yeah,
2: and, and we see that for the mainstream media we see that in other places too we certainly see that from Congress
1: yeah oh terrible yeah I, I just I can't believe how far it's gone there's no um, yeah I, I, I can't take any word I cannot um, we're constantly have uh, CNN of course and Fox and all this stuff running every day and NPR of course is who I'm part of but I just can't believe on every story that comes up First of all, there has to be an editorial by some so-called professionals. But there's also, I feel like I need to check everything that I'm told.
2: Right. Well, I do have a fact check. I, I think that is the case, because either the story is not fully reported, which is likely because an editor had to cut it down, chop it down, or it has a particular perspective or bias, depending on what the source is. Um, I I think a story that raises questions is a good story as opposed to a story that just tells you here's you know This is the entire story.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah
1: when they have a conclusions and uh, It's it's just uh, so well that that's really interesting too. you know You're the ESP wars. I think that was Mm -hmm. one of the most I think it's probably one of your most interesting Parts of your life I would guess right yeah, I mean I
2: I only got involved in in the last few years Um, we are Ed May, I'm meeting with Ed May tonight, in fact. We are going to be launching a Kickstarter uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um I have to determine if we're going to do it right before or right after Thanksgiving, which will uh, be to try to raise money to publish, to get published the, at least the first two volumes, what we think is going to be a five-volume se- set or series, um, of the best of the declassified CIA material, because we have it. Um, there's 89,000 pages. <laughs> wow. And it has to be gone through and picked through and we're planning on doing volumes about you know, with the best of the remote viewings the the, the Results of the scientific experimentation on PK as well as other uh, As well as remote viewing. I'm going to be in charge of a volume on the more political end of things So getting to sort through political memos and the black budget and black, you know black ops uh, black project type things which I f- find really fascinating and then there'll be stuff stuff uh, Quite a, it's probably going to be at least two volumes on the best of the remote So it's some really good quality stuff and Ed's actually been uh, using Google Earth to look at the Soviet target, the old Soviet targets which are still existing the buildings still are there even though they've been abandoned and compare them against the drawings that were done in the 1980s by Joe McMonigle and Angela Ford and other people and uh, it's something they were never able to do before and what's really interesting is that What he's seeing so far is is dead on. Uh, Ingo Swan, apparently, who was the who started the idea of remote viewing for the project, actually modeled something. He actually created a three D model uh, other than drawing or painting it, and has been able to get a through thanks to Google Earth uh, picture of that location and some more information about it, and it matches. I mean, this is 1970s where we had no spy satellites that could even look at these things.
1: Wow. I, I find that real fascinating. Interesting area. Um Yeah. And and I, I don't know why more more <laughs> I'll pick on the media. Why why more uh media is not involved in so many more uh, mm-hmm. things with meat to it. Some, something that has some
2: Well we're hope we're hoping the Kickstarter will get some attention. We are um you know, we're looking it's not a small one because we have to there's a lot of work that has been done, some graphics have to be, you know, right. scanned and all sorts of stuff. So uh, we do have a publisher uh, that's willing to, put them to do them, but we have to do all the work up front, and that's going to cost They don't have the money to, to, to support the work to actually get there, to the volumes.
1: Wow. That's just like, um, what brought you to that? Like, how did, how did you all of a sudden jump into the ESP? And, that, and that's Russia and that. and, and uh... Yeah.
2: Well, you know, I've been an educator in parapsychology since the early 80s, um, not just focused on, even though my field work is focused on apparitions, hauntings, and poltergeists. Um, I have been teaching classes, grad school, uh, non-academic, generally about parapsychology, and I, I've known, you know, gotten to know a lot of my colleagues over the years in the Parapsychological Association. Ed May is here locally in the Bay Area. We hit it off even in the 80s when I didn't know he was doing this government project. He was doing some more public remote viewing research, by the way, so there was kind of a a cover project happening, too, with, real, with remote viewing, but um, it was, um, I guess, the last five or six years, we really reconnected and been hanging out a bit, and he had this manuscript that had been written by different people, including uh, the translations from the Russians that were disparate pieces and needed to be put together and gone through, and uh, this is an area that is has always been of interest to me. Uh, the Remote viewing is really interesting. I taught people to do remote viewing in some of my classes, in fact, and it's always been interesting to me. It, it's it's a superpower. It's like the comic book thing. So when he gave me the manuscript, um, I read through it, and it was it was had a lot of interesting meat to it, and I. Took it on as a project to rewrite it uh, to get more information from Ed and from the other sources to pull from their so- source material a little bit more and come up with something that was cohesive, readable, and hopefully interesting to people.
1: Just, just yes, yeah. and and now when you were doing the research, was it was it, was there a real issue of, of coming back with uh, how do, how how do you get the Russian side of it involved, like how? Um, they're, they're very secretive, right? You know? Yeah,
2: well, you know, since the Cold War ended, um, Ed, in the early 90s, Ed, as the project director um, of Stargate, this project, so it was probably the mid-90s, uh, and Joe McMonigle, who, was, who became known as viewer number one, the, the best of the remote viewers, they were invited by the Russian counterparts to, to come over and visit. Uh, General Alexei Savin invited him over, and so they went over and they got to know Alexei Savin and Boris Ratnikov uh, and some of the remote viewers, and you know, this was no longer secretive because the Soviet Union was gone. Uh, so uh, one of uh, Ed's other colleagues, Viktor Rubel, is a Russian national who is also here in the States, living lives here in the States, and he was able to uh, get interviews with Ratnikov and Savin, both of whom ran or worked in the remote the remote viewing and other psychic spying type stuff, and then with several Russian scientists. Because of this, again, it, it's not been closed off since the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, and in fact, Ed's going over there in a couple of weeks with Joe McMonigle and I believe Angela Ford, another one of the viewers. They've been invited over um, to for the launch party of the Russian version of ESP Wars, which was actually written before I got involved, so I'm not involved in that. But while they're there, they're planning on doing some video interviews with Savin and Ratnikov and, and Nikolash, Nikolai Sham and a couple other folks, get them on, uh, on uh, video. So we actually have to have not just an audio recording that's been translated, but also these folks on video. And going further into what they did, uh, they're even hopefully going to visit the only existing uh, Typhoon-class submarine, a killer-class submarine, which was the target of Joe McMonigle's viewing while it was being built in a warehouse. Uh, the, the submarine, which was the kind of submarine they had in the Humpharetta Cobra, uh, it still exists, and no American group has ever been, uh, media group, nobody from TV has ever been allowed to film it. And Ed has, a, uh, has a, an invitation to take a crew and shoot the sub. So not just for remote viewing purposes, but also for, for historical purposes, <laughs> They're going to get some really cool stuff. Wow,
1: wow! So now, now, and, and let's talk about you here. Now, you've um, you are also uh, doing what? You're teaching classes, aren't you? Or are you giving? Uh...
2: Yeah, no, I, I teach classes in a couple different locations in different modalities. I teach for the Rhine Education Center, Rhine Research Center. That's R H I N E. That's the Rhine Research Center is the Legacy Lab of J B Rhine. Um, it used to be the Duke Lab back in the up, up until the mid '60s and we have online courses so mid-january there'll be a an eight-week online introduction to parapsychology course which i'll be teaching and then also reviewing we'll a couple of short classes in there as well some four-week classes i teach uh, courses through a location here in the bay area a very non-academic called hch institute and we have actually a, a series of classes which if you take them all you get a certificate and uh, their introductory overview classes fairly deep, and I give my students a lot of supplemental material as part of the class. And people can take them locally, or they can attend live by phone, or they uh, can work with me on a distance version, which is audio based and phone based. So I actually get one-on-one with my students, phone or Skype, as well. Uh, so there are a lot of options for that, and uh, you know they can find out more about them. Uh, the Rhine Center, the thing to do is just go to rhine, dot and just look for the education link on the left-hand side. You can go to my website, mindreader.com, and also link out to the Rhine Center that way, but there's a one of the drop-down menus talks about the Parapsychological Studies Certificate Program, and or you can just simply email me from my website. You'll also get on my email uh, newsletter. That way and find out about my classes. And then I'll, I'm occasionally gonna be doing uh, webinars with the Forever Family Foundation, and I'll be teaching in in a few other places as well.
1: Wow, Uh, that's fascinating, and I um, definitely want to hook up that. I I know uh, years back, I uh, uh, took some uh, courses with uh, Karen O'Keefe. Oh,
2: yeah.
1: You know. um, uh, Yeah,
2: he's off the classes, yeah. You know, there are a couple for educational opportunities, um, if you go to the Azire, T-H-E-A-Z-I-R-E, um, that's Nancy Zingroni and Carlos Alvarado, and, or you can just go to WizIQ, which is a platform, um, a learning platform. They offer a couple of free classes every year in parapsychology as well. Uh, there's, there's more and more opportunities because we're able to get online and because we're able to use technology to deliver everything from tele to webinars to online courses and, and other things. So it, it's, it's not that people should be lacking for opportunities to learn. It's just whether they have the drive and want to spend a little bit of money because these are not terribly expensive courses.
1: Oh, yeah, no, well worth it, well worth it. Uh, you know, we just can't, I, I just, I want to learn more and more. The older I get, I want to know yeah. more. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah,
2: and you know, we're always hoping that the ghost hunting groups um, will somehow wake up and realize that they can up their game. They can actually really do much better if they actually learn something. are you right. reading a book, yeah, starting with reading a book, or um, at least going to the to the websites of the parapsychology folks, as opposed to the websites of other ghost hunters, and starting there. I mean, there, there's lots of free opportunities, and I'm happy to point people in those directions as well. Much as I'd like them to take my classes, but there's plenty of free opportunities, and I'm happy to, to to point people in the right direction for those.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, I you know I I I really don't think that the uh, I think that most of these groups and stuff will be gone in 10
3: years.
2: Well, they, they typically fracture, uh, split, so the original group is often gone, and then there's some other new group, so it's like generational in some respects. Yeah. Uh, I knew of, uh, there were a couple groups, there's still one group in, in Seattle called A-Ghost that's been around right. for quite for a long time, for well over 10 years, Yeah. and that group, people in that group Split off and split off and split off. You know, one group actually spawned like 25 other groups because the people didn't like the approach that the initial people had, which was frankly a little bit more educational. Yeah, (laughs) and that's the problem: is you have you know people come in. They're sometimes really good groups, and then the people who come in say, "Oh, this is focused. I have to learn something. Forget that. I don't want to do that. I'll start my own group."
1: Yeah. What about the (laughs) T-shirts?
2: Well, you know. Here's my biggest problem, the t-shirts, uh, and the van signs and everything like that. Yeah. You can't promise confidentiality to a family and then show up at their house with a car or van with a big sign on it and t-shirts and jackets that have logos indicating you're ghost hunters. You can't, you can't offer confidentiality to people and you need to offer that. So yeah. that's great to wear out to, to advertise yourselves, but um, that, very indica- that very thing is ridiculous, and you don't see Jason and Grant doing that. Yeah. <laughs> or Zach doesn't do that. I mean, they don't wear Ghost, Ghost Adventures T-shirts.
1: No, but he's got a look. So
2: yeah, well, there's a look. Yeah, okay. You, you can have a you can have a stylist give
1: you a look. He's one. he's got a look, right? So yeah. it's the hair and everything. So he's right. No, <laughs> it's just terrible. No, I think what I mean is that most of these. I think a lot of the fad will wear away. I yeah, think a lot did, of people right. are on it and jumping, and it's the cool thing to do right now. It's the Lady Gaga thing to do. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that I could just see how, in 10 years, something else being the thing to do.
2: Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, plus, you know, the the uh, demographics of ghost hunting groups are per- pretty much... Um, pretty much... C- Consistent across the country uh, and across the world. So those as those folks get older and less younger people get involved and interested. In, and fortunately, we're seeing more and more younger people who are actually questioning um, what is going on. So they're they're rather than joining ghost hunting groups, they are starting to wake up that there's more to these experiences. Right. And that's where we kind of the hope of the future is. It's certainly not what the ghost hunting groups it looks like.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that um, I'm hoping, anyway. But I mean, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have to have to be careful. I've got other shows that I have to uh, talk with some of those people with. <laughs>
2: right. Well, you know, I, I think their interest. All I want to see is that they are honest about their interest. If yeah. Thrill seekers admit that. And yeah. Don't try to don't try to work with people who are in distress. Um, you know, I have no problem with people who are honest about their experiences. I've, I've talked to many ghost hunters who are only in it to try to have an experience. I have no problem with them whatsoever, because they're honest about it. It's when they start claiming to be professionals and start, you know, denigrating any educational opportunity or saying that um, people should not be um, offering classes for money because you can't be an expert in this. And you know, I have a graduate degree in this. Uh, that's an educational de- a degree with the education behind it. So. Right. Or some of these folks to say that there are no experts or people who know what they're talking about indicates their ignorance. Yeah. More than anything.
3: yeah, yeah.
1: So, what do you? Um, just for suggestions, what do you think that uh, people should read? Do you have any? Uh, well,
2: uh, you know, actually, I will recommend Deborah Blum's book, *The Ghost Hunters*. It's, it reads like a novel. It's about the early investigators and why they got into this and some of the early phenomena and uh, I really heartily recommend that one as just simply um, a fun thing to read so you know where you came from, so to speak. But for a good introduction, um, one of the more interesting books out there, which is a little bit old, but it's been reprinted, and it really will give you at least a basis. It's a book called Psychic Exploration, by, uh, was edited by Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14 astronaut, it was reprinted a couple of years ago, and it's available readily available on Amazon. Uh, it'll give you a good understanding of uh, all sorts of areas around parapsychology, including chapters on apparitions, hauntings, and poltergeists. Um, There's a book called uh, called, um, Entangled Minds, if you have any interest in quantum physics and and psychic ability. Uh, There's a section in that book which is written by Dean Radin, R-A-D-I-N, which gives you a good summary of research in parapsychology, and it's written for the layperson, so it's not like you have to think hard about understanding. Uh, You mentioned my book, The Ghost Detective's Guide to Haunted San Francisco, and that's rather than being a directory about places in San Francisco, it's really, uh, it was co-written by a psychic medium named Annette Martin who passed away a couple of years ago. And we provide you with our, a narrative of our investigation of only a few places in the Bay Area and San Francisco proper and one outside and how we work together and what she picked up as a medium and how I looked at things as a parapsychologist. So it's a good, very readable, uh, fun book on how a psychic and a parapsychologist work together and in, in haunted places. So you can kind of get a narrative and some fun stuff there. So those are good starts. Um,
1: and I think that's really important that you say that. I was going to uh, bring it around somehow. that Now, and this isn't, I, I don't want people to get the idea that you're, you're, um, Slamming um, psychics or a total oh, disbeliever in no. mediums, you have a uh, you just have a, uh, um, a need for um, some some reality. Like so, you you actually believe that there are um, um, mediums and legitimate well, ones.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, you know, as president of the Forever Family Foundation, I work with a number you know I know of. I've met many of the mediums that we've had certified. Uh, Julie Bishal at the Winbridge Institute. Has taken 20 mediums, there's now only 19 of them around, who have gone through a one year, very ultra controlled research process to be vetted as research mediums, certified research mediums. There are people who put out incredibly evidential material. And I've worked with psychics, re- I mean, regularly since the mid 80s and even before that a little bit when I first got into the field. Um, you just have to find the right people. And just like with anybody else it's not just do they come up with information that's accurate can they can you work with them and there's many psychics who i've not been able to work with because of their personality conflicts not because they're not good psychics but because of personality conflicts so yeah. that's another thing we have to look at uh and you know let's face it the devices everybody uses cannot we don't know what we're trying to detect so there is no such thing as a ghost detector at this moment except for a human being or an animal because we are we have psychic experiences. So the witnesses themselves who have seen ghosts can be used as ghost detectors. Psychics can be used as ghosts, ghost detectors. You know, so it's it's about people. It's not about the tech supports the experience of the people rather than the other way around.
3: Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And my Ouija board. No, just. <laughs>
2: you know, I, I've never used one in a case. I've used an etch sketch in a case, but. Well, <laughs> oh, there you go. That's
1: a new angle.
2: Yeah, seeing if the ghost can actually do with anything with it. Um we actually had a case where the people uh, gave me showed me the extra sketch that had been left uh, that, that overnight had ended up with a very beautiful curved cursive help me on it, which would take somebody hours to do with an extra sketch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what the hell? We, we bring it along. Um, the Ouija board comes off your unconscious mind. It's no different than dowsing rods. It's no different than pendulums. None of those things are necessarily going to be tools that you can really use to communicate.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. I just I just think they're all items. This is a, you can take yeah. any item. It, I, I still refer to it like a cell phone. It's not it's not the creator of what we think is evil or a demon. You know, it's it's not right, like right. It's, you know like. I just, uh, some people well, the, are so scared of it.
2: The biggest problem with the Ouija board is if you approach it like you're afraid you might get something, it's tapping into your unconscious if you're using it by yourself, or it does. So who knows who's unconscious if you're using it with more than one person? And that's where nightmares come from. Yeah. <laughs> so your expectation of getting something possibly evil is going to probably let your unconscious go, ooh, let's have some fun. Yeah. Not, not an outside spirit.
1: <laughs> yeah, certainly an interesting field <laughs> Well, um, I have to say thank you very much um, You're very welcome I'm, I'm glad you were able to come and, and, and redo the show for me uh, Very important uh, um, I like intelligent conversations on the on the subject So this is a um, great show And um, hope hope to have you on again has been completed the end by George he's got it it is the
3: end I'll see you.
0: this has been a production of the Z-Talk radio network
3: if you're lying to me I'll be back
1: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts
3: here's a show that we recommend Hi, I'm Helen Lewis, and I want to tell you about a podcast I've made for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. It's called The New Gurus, and it's about how everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets some thousands, even millions of devoted followers. These online prophets are telling us how to eat, how to think, how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. So how exactly are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? Find out by subscribing to the new gurus wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts,